Welcome to the Doll Podcast. I'm your host, Louisa Maxwell. My guest is award-winning artist and illustrator Mel Odom, whose work has graced magazine covers for Time, Omni, The New York Times, Rolling Stone, Blue Boy, and Playboy. He has created artwork for numerous best-selling books and album covers for CBS Records. Mel's Art Deco-influenced portraits are reminiscent of dramatically lit Hollywood film stills. His love of film and beauty inspired him to make a doll, Jean Marshall, a fashion doll and star of stage and screen. In our interview, Mel reveals the films and stars that gave him inspiration for Jean and her career. He also shares memories of his best friend and real-life MGM movie star Marsha Hunt and the doll he made in her likeness to honour her. It was a drawing of a beautiful face that inspired Mel to create a work in three dimensions, a doll. Jean was launched in 1995 and the press heralded her with the headline, A Star is Born and She's a Doll. Jean was 15 and a half inches tall with a wardrobe of fabulous costumes. Her backstory read like a bestseller as she was cast as a star of Hollywood's golden age of the 1940s and 50s. Mel Odom, welcome to the Doll Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. It's really great to have you here and thank you so much. It is just Jean is a huge part of my life as a collector and as somebody interested in art and beauty and also in Hollywood film. Jean Marshall's film career is set in the era that saw such great films as Gone with the Wind, Casablanca, All About Eve, Mildred Pierce and Laura, to name but a few. I'm a huge fan of the movies of the 1930s through 50s and spent many of my childhood rainy evenings in the company of Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, Hedy Lamarr, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, just to name a few fabulous stars. I love film noir. That's my favorite with its stark lighting and dangerous characters. Mel, were you a film fan too as a child? Oh, yes. From very early on, I was. Um, I watched movies... As much, well, I started watching them with my parents, of course. They would have a movie on, like Saturday Night at the Movies was... Me too. Well, most of my early movies was then. They weren't on like they are now. But then they started coming on later at night, and I would wait for my parents to go to bed and go to sleep, and I would get up and sneak into the living room and turn the sound down really low so that I could stay up and watch movies while they were asleep. I unfortunately fell asleep on the floor one night, and they found me there and caught on to what I was doing, so that was curtailed for a while. (laughs) But, you know, my mother loved films particularly, and I would watch them with her, so I got to see lots of movies, and I loved loved Hollywood. I, I, as a kid, did not realize that the films were even a different time. I thought they were just a different place. Yeah. So I wanted to be in that place, wherever it was. It's a magic place. Exactly. I have so many great memories of watching. I mentioned Mildred Pierce. I mean, the first time I saw that was with my mother. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Million Dollar Movie, you know. Sure. Channel sure. 11, I think it was Channel 11 <laughs> in New York. Yeah. And it was just amazing these characters and the characterization is very true. A lot of the stories hold, you know, there's things, of course, have changed very dramatically. But for example, Mildred Pierce, a woman getting out there and trying to make it alone. It didn't go so well in the end, you know, because it ended in a police station. (laughs) Vita was the wild card there. So, you know, really wasn't her fault. (laughs) Nobody wants a daughter like Vita. Very few people have. I was funny, I was watching it recently and I was thinking, really, Vida had issues for a psychiatrist very early on. Oh, very, very yeah. much so. Very much so. Right. But I don't think, I can't see Jean Marshall in in Mildred Pierce, although I think she would have been able to pull it off. Sure. It's more a moderate role for me. I think I think Jean could have played Vida. Oh, yeah. I think she could have done that very well. 
I, but no, she is not. She is not um, Mildred. I, you're right. Madra was very much more Mildred, which is actually how Madra happened, because we needed somebody who could play those characters. That Jean really—that was not her persona. No. And early on, people were writing stories for Jean and making her sort of a bitch and, um, you know, a, a difficult star. And I thought, that's really not her. So I knew from those that Madra was actually needed. And when I went to Ashton Drake and said, I want to do a second doll, and it's to, her name is Madra Lord. Well, actually, I didn't even have the name yet. That took a long time, actually, with trademarks and everything. I said she, and they said, oh, are you, but I said, I want it to be a girl doll so that when Trent already had his name, when Trent comes along, it will immediately be a triangle. And that will be a lot more fun than Barbie and Ken. Oh, yes. You know, being, being automatically a couple. I wanted the couple to be more um, fluid than that. But that's what we like. We like the drama of relationship. Who's going yeah. to get the girl or the guy? You want that tension because it brings you into the story. You start to root for one, you root for the other. It can be even divisive in opinion, you know. <laughs> Everyone's arguing. When I told I told uh, the people at Ashton Drake that I wanted to do this, the second doll to be a, another girl, they went, oh, Jean's best friend. And I went, no, Jean's worst enemy. And they went like, and to their credit, they all went, Oh, yeah. They got it. I said, because this is Hollywood, baby. And, and, and if you're at the studio and you're getting the roles, you're somebody's worst enemy. So, and they understood it. They got well, it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, look at the fighting that went on, uh, well, allegedly, but the competition that went on for the role of Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with yeah. the Wind. Yeah, for years. Gene would. Jean would have been beautiful in that. And, and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Madra, Madra's not Scarlet. <laughs> That's sort of the issue. I mean, my friend Marsha Hunt. Oh, yes, the great star. Was um, auditioned, screen tested, screen tested for Melanie. She had, it, she had the role for a weekend. She went in and met with the studio. They called her back a second time. She had already done her screen test and everything. And she got a call saying, would you please come in for a reading? We've got your screen test. We know how you look on this, but you were so young when you came in for the first one. You just didn't seem right. But it's been a year now. I'd like for you to come in and read for the role. She came in, she read for the role. And, and I'm not exactly sure who she was meeting with, but it was, it was like the big deal. And he went, I have my Melanie. And she went home and told her mother. They said, but don't, don't, don't tell anybody because we want to release it through the press. She told her mother. And on Monday, she went in on a Friday. On Monday, her mother called her and said, read the trades. And they had given the role to um, Olivia de Havilland and broke Marsha's heart. And she said it was going to be the last time Hollywood ever broke her heart. She, she, she got a lot older uh, very fast when that happened. But she was up for the, she had the role for a weekend. I mean, the stress of that in all parts of show business, but it can also happen in any walk of life. But it's a constant process of auditioning, being raised up and dashed down. I mean, people yeah, are familiar yeah. with this now in reality TV Everything. shows where people yeah. sing. But if they can imagine that for a, a professional singer, dancer, actress, uh, actor, uh, this is every week. This isn't, yeah. you know, yeah, it's, it's really... It's a rough, rough business. It's a rough business. It's a wonderful business. But Marsha was a great star and she had great roles. Yeah. Well, she was at MGM then. She was one of the most fascinating people I've ever known in my life that I've been blessed to know in my life. And I will miss her terribly for the rest of my life because she was such... She. <laughs> she became a part she became a, a very significant part of my life for 22 years so yes. i was you know very grateful for all of it very we were also grateful that you shared you were very kind about sharing a certain amount of your time with marsha on social oh, media yeah. which was wonderful because as a huge film fan as a fan of her work and then if you mentioned a movie i'd go watch the movie yeah but if you look at if you look at marsha's career. It's 
ranges over so many things. And then she's there with you, giving her reactions, talking about things. It's just wonderful. It was a huge privilege for me. It really was. And that I got to introduce people to Marsha was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Because by then, I loved her dearly. And I know, I knew how, how really modest she was in, in most situations. And I, um, the first doll we did of her was Mel Loves Marsha. And I came up with that idea. I had the dress made and I brought it, presented it to Ashton Drake because it was the first time we ever stepped outside of Jean's storyline. And I suggested the idea and, that, and, and said, well, and Marsha will come to the convention this year because it was going to be in Hollywood. So um, they went for it and she got to meet all of the collectors and they got to see what an amazingly grounded and intelligent and charming and, and really sweet person she was. It was wonderful. I loved it. I think that's a wonderful thing to mix, mix Hollywood, to mix, uh, you know, fashion doll collecting, which is so much about costume yeah. and yeah. imagination. What an amazing thing to happen. I love that. Well, it was funny because we were signing um, autographs at that convention and there was a long, long line of people wonderfully. And this was Sandra Stilwell's produced this convention. We had been doing it for like a couple of hours and she looked at me and she said, do you do this every year? And I went, yeah, every year. And she went, I haven't worked this hard since the Hollywood canteen. (laughs) And we laughed about Ah. it. And, and it was, it was, it was, it was something special to have her there and make her a part of Jean's lore and to include a friend like that in something good that was happening in my life. It was a great thing. I, I miss it. I really do. And it's such a great thing for all of us to be able to share the films and to share your recollections and your feeling for this. And it also brings a new dimension to the whole Gene story of this real-life star who's part of your life. Yeah, yeah. It was, it yeah. was, it was magic. It was really magic. Um, uh, what happened was we... Um, we're doing. I was doing working on the book Gene Marshall Girl Star, and one the editor I believe came up. Um, Will Schwalbe came up with the conceit that we would try to include real people in with the fictional characters. So we asked Demi Moore, and I said, "Let me get in touch with I." I my friend is a friend of Marsha Hunt's. Let me get in touch with her and see if she would write a few sentences as if she had known Marsha. So my, I, and I sent her a letter through my friend and she responded and we corresponded. I've got a, I've got a many, many letters that we wrote back and forth. I treasure them actually. And um, she had to come to town to do a tribute to Jules Dassin, the director. She had done two films and a Broadway play with him. So she came to town and we met and we had a three-hour lunch, and we were literally best friends from then on. I mean, it was it was it was kind of. I mean, I don't usually meet somebody for lunch and then consider them a best friend after one lunch, and that's precisely what happened. And since her passing, um, people have told me, you know, Marsha told me you were her best friend, and I like I was so moved by that because I knew I thought she was my best friend, but that she would tell that to someone else really choked me up. Actually, it was lovely. You know, Marsha had so many fabulous films, and she had such a range of characters. Marsha um, wanted to be a character actress. She, the first movie she did with MGM was These Glamour Girls. And Marsha has a really dramatic suicide scene in this. And she got the notices when this film came out. And, I, and she was telling me about it. And she said, oh, that suicide did worlds for my career. <laughs> and, and she became uh, uh, known, the youngest, considered the youngest character actress in Hollywood. I mean, her role in Pride and Prejudice, Mary, is... I love that. Yeah, she's... She's amazing. She's very, very funny in that. And the, the humor in the role wasn't there in the writing of the role. She wanted to make it funny. And she started doing that in early filming. And the director saw the comic potential in Marsha's performance. And they worked together to make it funny. 
And um, like, uh, there's a actually a costume test photo of Marsha where, as Mary, with where Marsha's eyes are crossed, literally oh. crossed. She really was going all out to make Mary the the black sheep, because the, oh, the fa- it was a family of beauties, and Mary yes. was the only one not considered so. So yeah. it, it, she made that. She made that role hers. And Mary Bolin, who played the mother, got wind very soon that Marsha was being funny and kept Marsha in her peripheral vision from then on when they were doing scenes together because Marsha was being as funny as Mary Bolin was. Yeah, but it's a great thing because it gives that, you know, that sister vibe. Uh, oh, yeah. It brings a wonderful dimension to Jane Austen because you really get into that they're sisters because that's what right. you do, especially if you're the younger one. And it's one of it's one of my favorite roles that she did. Mine too. But that's the thing about character acting. When they get to the real relationship of sisters, it was terrific. Yeah. Do you think Jean it. could play comedy like that? I thought Jean could do anything was my approach. Um, Jean was... My Frankenstein monster of all the favorite traits I had in actresses that I loved. I wanted Jean, first of all, I wanted Jean to be a very grounded, kind, nice person. That was mm-hmm. first and foremost, I, foremost in, my, in my developing her. And um, I thought she would sort of be a blank check for actresses of that era, because it was, it, Jean wasn't about any one specific actress. She was about that entire generation of actress. And, you know, the ones with, you know, Lana Turner, Rita Hayworth, uh, Jean Tierney, you know, they, they were all, they were all parts of, of her. And um, I knew she had to be very adaptable because of what I wanted to do with Jean as a doll for her to have many, many roles. And for her to have many roles, she had to be a very versatile actress. So that was my goal with Jean. Well, it came through in all the various guises, because as she changes costume, she changes the personality of of the role she's playing. That's the marvelous thing about Jean. And that became instantly, when we first saw, for example, Red Venus, and we saw uh, Pinup, and then we had the Monaco, the beautiful bride dress. And then we had the glamorous black dress where she was going to a premiere. And immediately she's cast in various yeah. situations as any actress would be. People did that. I loved it. And there were such fantastic accessories, the little handbags, gloves, you know, elbow length, elegant oh, yeah. elbow length gloves, the jewelry, the little earrings. You know, the detail is there that you really feel you're part of a star vehicle. But also, I'd like to say the hairstyle pinup is so 1940s, the little Oh, yeah, it's beautiful, is it? That's my favorite doll I did with Ashton Drake. Me too. I just think she's so beautiful with that dark hair. It's really, um, when when she happened the second year, I was completely in love with her. And Tim Kennedy, yes. des- Tim, Tim Kennedy designed that little um, uh, Mary Widow that she's wearing, the little black yeah. lingerie she's wearing. And um, it was, it, it was, I think she was a perfect doll. I really love Pinup as my favorite Ashton Drake doll. You could just pose her as it was. And, you know, the beautiful kind of, uh, what's it called? Penoir. Yes, yes. Of chiffon. And uh, when you came out with the fantastic uh, furniture and she had a chaise long, that's when you could really go for it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really. that's, that's, a Vargas, <laughs> that's a Vargas drawing waiting to happen, for sure. Yeah, I mean, but you see, that's exactly what she does. And of course, photography, we, I always say this on every podcast, so forgive me, I'm saying it again. Photography is such a big part of the hobby that being able to translate what you see, the aspect you see about the doll, and take a picture of it, is is a joy. Yeah, It's a joy it in is. any collective. Yeah. And I love, I have my trunks of jean clothes stuffed with different costumes. Oh, I do and too. I really, a lot of them. I love them. <laughs> yes. Well, well, they were really 
I wanted people to know how much I loved Gene and how much I loved the I loved the whole notion of Hollywood. I, there was a great deal of skill and a lot of love from all the designers. I mean, the designers, the original designers were all friends of mine. We talked about this long before Gene ever came out. I'd been working on Gene for years when she finally came out. And um, they, it's funny, the odd thing was all three of the first designers lived on the same street. And I would run up and down the street every time, <laughs> every time anything new was done, and show all three of them because it was such an it was such it was a tremendously exciting period for me and scary and scary because I'd I'd never been in business like that and it was I had a feeling it was going to be big business which it turned into actually. I mean, it's daunting. You're coming from a career as a, a top illustrator, a top artist, and then you say, "Why don't I do something completely different?" Yeah, yeah, that's that, a challenge. Was- it it was um it was a a lovely lovely experience but it was at the time it felt like it was never going to happen i had been working on gene for years before it actually took off and it's felt like well mel you know what if this well i still had my illustration career and i was still working as an illustrator of most of that time to bring in the money to pay to develop gene so um, it was it was a wonderful challenge. Um, I I I won't dwell on this too much, but Gene was therapy for me at the time. I had a, one of my best friends was very ill. I used Gene as something to focus on, beautiful and and creative and positive to get me through some tough times, and it, and it, which made me love Gene even more because she had been in this odd way, this, this friend for me during this time when it, 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 it really mattered. It really mattered. But she's a creative vehicle. And I think you'll find that in people who love Jean in their story, they would also share with you that that is the joy she brings into people's lives. And, you know, it can really help you at a low moment. I was doing an appearance um, somewhere in the Midwest. I'm not exactly sure where, but I remember all the waitresses were dressed as Heidi, wherever I was. Are you sure you weren't in Austria? Because <laughs> No, I, I'm positive I was still in the United States. But <laughs> This is very common here. <laughs> but a, a woman came in during a signing I was doing, and she had this scrapbook. And it was her jean scrapbook. And, I, and, she, and I had, it was the first time anybody had, had ever had a scrapbook to show me. And I was fascinated by it. It was thick. It was like a, a traditional scrapbook. And they were filled, it was filled with photos of her parents on their honeymoon and in their early marriage that the dates corresponded to the dates we had placed on Jean's fashions. Because we dated. We, and it was like her parents on their honeymoon and Jean wearing a costume from that period. And I I said, oh, my gosh, I've never seen a scrapbook like this. And she said, well, my mother died last year. And this scrapbook and Jean is how I'm mourning her. And I am a big baby. And I had tears rolling down my cheeks instantly from that because it had never occurred to me that Jean would be there for other people the way she was for me. Because Jean was such a creative obsession of mine that it got me through a lot of stuff. I never, it never occurred to me that that would come out the other end and people would be using Jean to celebrate someone who's gone or to get through a difficult time in their life. And people would tell me that. I had a woman come to an appearance I did at, at FAO Schwartz here in New York, and she had agoraphobia. And it was the first time in three years she had been out of her home. And her husband, after she and I had spoken, came up to me and said, you don't know how grateful I am for Jean. She got my wife out of the house for the first time in three years to come meet you. And I was just knocked out by that kind of, of reaction. I did not expect it. I, I was so moved by it, so happy that Jean could do that for people. But again, I, I'm a big baby and I just like, I get all teary when somebody says something like that to me. And I was, I didn't see it coming. 
did not see it coming. Still vibrant. It's, she's still doing great things for people. They're, oh, yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm so happy with just that. just wonderful. People are still writing books about Jean, reissuing catalogs of her fashions and doing all kinds of creative yeah. projects. And there's, again, some beautiful, stunning photography. And now people, sure, you know, Jean has such a crazy, fabulous, huge wardrobe already. But you also see people designing fantastic amazing 50s things, amazing fashions things. that are yeah. worthy of Jean. So it's, it's absolutely, absolutely. And you know, absolutely. you can love I'm, the fifties. I love the fifties. I mean, I, it's my mother's time. And I think that's why I love the fifties. And it's a way of remembering her. So when exactly. I play with Jean and put on clothes, or if I make something, I'm thinking about something she told me. Because she's young in the 50s and then she's, you know, there in the 60s and there's a huge change. And I don't really see Jean in miniskirts, but I bet she did. That's why she retired. That's exactly why she retired. So that she could wear hot pants in private? (laughs) Well, you know, I I saw a lot of older actresses wearing mod clothes in the 60s because to keep up. And I thought... Ooh, I don't want Jean to do that. I yeah. really don't want Jean to you do that. You see it in movies. Yeah, it's 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 and on TV and, yeah. and there's I there's Colombo. Well, I won't go into specifics, but I saw women in mini skirts who probably shouldn't have been. But I just thought Jean's going to retire. I I, I said it for like sixty one, I think, because the fashions were still very classic and beautiful then. Yeah, I think Jackie Kennedy. Exactly, which we explored. But um, I didn't want, I would do another doll for the 60s, but it wouldn't be Jean. It wouldn't yeah, be Jean. Yeah, be something more mod, more Carnaby Street, you know. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because yeah. those are still the fashions of my childhood and my youth, and I love those fashions. They're beautiful. But Jean, um, Jean was a, a different character. I just thought she would, I wanted her to move to Italy and have a wonderful retirement and a wonderful life after having had a career. Yeah, she could wear a lot of classic Italian knitwear yeah. with a touch of Pucci. Yes. Pucci is still good, <laughs> yeah. still elegant. Yeah. There were all these wonderful designers that she could have worn in retirement. Yeah, in retirement. And it's, it, it's going to be extraordinary to imagine that. In fact, it would be great to put together a whole wardrobe of what Jean wore next. Well, I always liked Jean's uh, one of my favorite outfits for Jean is afternoon off. Yeah, and it's the it was the, like very early because, and Doug James designed it, um, and I loved it because it gave Jean a private life, and uh, and and it's such a classic, such a classic look. Can you describe wears. it, Mel? It's the little sweater and Doug James had designed this for. Uh, an auction where it was going to be auctioned off and he showed it to me and I went, oh no, I want this for Jean and we don't want us to manufacture it. So we sent it to Ashton Drake. She's wearing a short sleeve um, cream colored sweater with two rows, I believe, of crystal beads circling the neck, a lovely narrow pencil skirt, um, checked pencil skirt and this great sort of swing jacket, gray swing jacket. And she it comes with a, ma- a movie magazine that she's on the cover of. And it, 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 it was a lovely um, explanation that Jean w- wasn't always a movie star, that she had time in private. And I thought that was kind of important to establish to make her more three-dimensional. Actually. Yeah, it does. And it's just that little accessory of the magazine is such a fantastic oh, thing. Yeah. Or the outfit she wore, the safari outfit, and she's got the, yes. the pith helmet yes, type pith helmet. style. Yeah. And it's just with a leopard print scarf. And <laughs> I, I believe Doug, I believe um, Tim Alberts did that. It, it was so beautifully tailored. Oh, it's so amazing. It's so amazing. In fact, you could even put that in with a contemporary fashion and give it a twist if you wanted to. Oh, yeah. But it yeah, yeah. also went with a great canon of films that put heroines in exotic locations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it allowed them to explore different parts of the world. Well, that was kind of one of the things. We tried to explore different genres of film that we could make a new title, but it would imply so many other films. I always wanted Gene, well, Gene, just by the necessity of being a product needed to be versatile and varied. And that gave her a great career. 
those those requirements. Definitely. And she also danced in films, didn't she? Because she had sure. several beautiful costumes that were danced yes. in, dance inspired. So was Jean intended to be, you know, a bit of a singer dancer too, be in a kind of a musical theater film? Well, you know, everybody at MGM danced and sang whether it was their real voice or not, they danced and sang. I saw, I just watched Good News the other day, and Peter Lawford, who's the dramatic actor, as far as I know, dances and sings to that. And he's actually impressive as a dancer. I mean, he does this huge number with like a million people dancing behind him, and he has to do these all these incredible moves, and he does them, I think, to perfection. I love the kind of looseness of the way he dances. Yes. And um, so at MGM... If you were an actor there, you had classes to learn how to dance and sing. That's how that worked. You, there were no passes. You know, they're dramatic actresses and actors danced and sang. Even if it, like I said, it wasn't their voice coming out, they sang. So, of course, Jean had to do that. Jean had to do it too. I wonder, did she sing her own songs? Oh, yes, she did. Oh, good. I'm glad. (laughs) I decided Jean had a good voice. (laughs) I I think she would have had a good voice, too. I think she could have done it. It would have been really beautiful. What films inspired, you know, when you were first thinking about Jean, was there any particular movie, any particular star you kind of saw in your mind's eye? Well, Jean started as a drawing. I had done makeup for a friend of mine's doll, and I decided to see what I, I came up with the question, what would I do if I was designing a doll from scratch? And I started this drawing just because I had a few couple of weeks between assignments. And I started this drawing and I put the drawing over my drawing table. And for months, I would look up when I was like, you know, paused from actually drawing or whatever I was doing, or while I'm on the phone, I was looking at it. And I sort of decided, well, who is she? And then I thought, oh, she has to be a movie star. She has to be a movie star. And I wanted her to be in that period of the 40s and 50s, because I thought the clothes were so cool from that era. And then it she became, well, who is she? You know, who is she? So I used to spend summers in Coscob, Connecticut sometimes with family. And I decided she was from Coscob because it's a lovely town. Um, and then her story just sort of evolved in my mind. And there was no specific person that I thought of her as being, but Jean Tierney has been my favorite movie star for years. And so her coloring was definitely in my original drawing, Jean Tierney's coloring. But it couldn't be Jean Tierney because she had her own life and her own filmography. So I, I had to include elements of other people and things that I just made up, like the whole usherette thing, her being an usherette at a movie and being spotted by, you know, the director of a film that was premiering there. So I made up Hollywood lore because I, I suspect a lot of it is made up, <laughs> but I could center this around one person, Jean. I love that generation of actress. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, like Lana Turner and, and Rita Hayworth and Hedy Lamarr. I mean, these, these were the type of beauty that I tried to make Jean represent. And, but it was, she was never about one specific person. I think if I had to pick one, I would say that Jean Tierney was the, the visual inspiration for her but then i had to make her so that if you change when you change the hair color oh my god it's lana turner oh this looks just like rita hayworth she had to be able to apply all these stars so i made the face in a way a really beautiful blank check yeah that you could write in your name favorite name there and and i wanted her the gray eyebrows and the gray eye makeup everything was as close to making her look like she's in black and white as I could, because so many of my favorite movie stars were primarily in black and white films. And I, I loved that that look as well. Yeah, the planes of her face and the way the sculpt works is reminiscent of the way they beautifully lit, because everybody was beautifully oh, yeah. lit. Oh, my God. It's fantastic, whether it's Sunset Boulevard, which is a different type of lighting altogether. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or, you know, Laura, the, the lighting in Laura. Uh, many of Jean Tierney's movies, Whirlpool, 
And then if you think of Rita Hayworth, when Jean comes out as Red Venus, there's definitely yeah, a she's feeling Rita of Hayworth. Rita Hayworth. She's Rita Hayworth. And as you said, that blonde, ice-cold beauty that Lana Turner had this strength in a lot of the parts she played, this strong woman, because it was always a very dramatic situation. And definitely blonde Jean gets that feeling too. Well, that was the goal. In fact, it's funny, you should, this reminds me of something. When I would be working with Michael Everett, Everett, who sculpted Gene, at the end of every day, I would go to a lamp that was in his studio and hold her under that light in the type of three-quarter lighting they gave movie stars to see, because that was the lighting that, to me, implied the films that I was going for. And I would, and I have photos, Polaroid photos of just her under that light to see if the shading of her face works with, you know, is, is right for that. So it was, it was a very conscious element to make her look like she could have been photographed very beautifully. It also means that we can photograph her very beautifully and we can light Precisely. her. And that adds a dimension to dressing, collecting and enjoying the doll. Well, that's, that's what she was there for, to be enjoyed. Exactly. It was really all about enjoyment. In fact, what, at one of the things early on was remarkable at events. I took her out of the box and changed her clothes in front of people. And they were looking at me like I was walking on water because oh. at the time, you wouldn't even open a Barbie box because they were made to be... Mint in box. You would ruin the, their value someday. They'll be worth something, you know. And I said, listen... This doll is valuable for the play she creates. Don't put her in a closet in a box and expect to send your kid through college from the money you're going to make. This is about now and playing with her. This is, this is about play. And this is about the, the immediate and making her yours and changing anything about her you like or don't like. Change her hair, change her clothes regularly. I wanted her to be back to being an actual toy that people handled and enjoyed. Isn't that wonderful? And yes, it's I very so. important, the power of play and how relaxing sure it, it is. is and the energy it gives us and the creativity and the outlet, the creative outlet. Some collectors won't know that in the 90s, everybody thought, as you said, they were going to take their money from their dolls eventually, sell up and send their kid to college. Even with a number one Barbie, you won't even pay for the first year of college. Well, depends what kind of college right, you're gonna, right, going right. to. I don't know. <laughs> Correspondence course. Yeah. But it's not going to pay for it. This isn't, uh, you know, and it's uh, some of the great auction houses, when I interview them, always advise and they say, please buy what you love and enjoy it. Yes. Yes. Don't just, I mean, I play, I have antique dolls and I play with them. I take care of them. Me too. Me too. It's, it's the only way they make sense to me is that you get enjoyment out of them. You look, I pose them. I, you know, it, it's all, it's all about, it's all about the experience it yeah. gives you. And we should keep embracing that and make time for that every day to just enjoy them, be in the moment and feel happy, happiness, the happiness factor. When I think about Hollywood films, they tend to typecast women as the femme fatale or the girl next door. Right. Which parts do you think Jean preferred to play? I think with Jean's beauty, she could have played a number of things. She could play, um, I mean, because they're in films, a lot of really like, well, even in Jean Tierney's career, Leave her to heaven. She's one of the icy, coldest, most disturbing, sociopathic people, characters ever in a film at that time. I think Jean, as a person, was grounded enough that she was capable of playing anything. I think a lot of times roles back then, and I'm, I'm sort of reflecting on Joan Crawford a bit right now, a lot of roles had aspects of that person's past. Joan Crawford had a difficult time playing proper upper-class women. She had an edge to her, uh, uh, but she was great at these 
films where she comes from nothing and she triumphs and she struggles and she becomes. Oh, yeah. And there's so many of them. It's it's a character that she embraces because she had a hard time coming up herself. Exactly. exactly. She made her career. And she understood that character. And she kept her career going. Absolutely. She kept that character going because she understood that character so well. I don't think Jean understood that character, but I think she was capable as an actress to portray that character. Yeah. Because I, I, I give Jean a family with a, you know, a, her father's a doctor, Dr. Marshall, and she lives in a nice home in Coscob. And I gave her, her, her brother Sandy is killed in an automobile accident when Jean is, is young. And I thought that was necessary to make Jean somebody who understood how fast things can change and how fast joy can be stolen from you. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I didn't come up with that part of the book. My co-writer, Michael Summers, came up with, with Sandy and his dying in an automobile accident. And at first, I didn't want to do it because it, it upset me, yeah. frankly. And then I realized, oh, no, that's important. We have to include that because what we did from that is that after that happens, Gene starts escaping into, Gene starts going to movies a lot and escaping into the world in those movies to get away from the grief she feels from her brother's death. And I just thought, oh, my God, this explains, this is exactly why Gene's a movie star. This is her escape to a place where there are more happy endings than not. Yeah. But it also, the films gave her time to heal. They gave her a little right. bit of space, you know, so it's a yeah. healing. It's good mental health. It is, it is. And I, and I realized that that is a big part of what films do for people. They take you out of your life for a while. Yeah. Film, I think film noir is so important because it's about people making bad decisions. Yes. Invariably. Yeah. And and you can come away from that thinking, oh, I would have never been, I would have never made that mistake. Yeah. And it'll make you feel better about your life because you didn't take the money. You didn't, you know, kill your brother. You didn't, you know. Yeah. You, you know? So it, it's, and, and when I see film noir, I think that is what it's about. People in desperation, making very bad decisions and how they are resolved or not. And I think that connects very well with, you know, Jean's having lost, had a tragic loss early in her life that she understood maybe more than the average child did. And, and certainly more, she's discovered as a teenager. So I think she, she was already there emotionally, I think, from that. So she's able to draw on this, you know, which in itself yeah. is the one of the great essences of great acting is to be able to draw yeah. on your experience and communicate a version yeah. to an audience. Exactly. Exactly. So Hollywood films tend to typecast women as the femme fatale or the girl next door. Yes. Which parts do you think that Jean Marshall would prefer to play? Well, I think Jean would be the girl next door. I think that would be the easiest roles for her. But I think she, at some point, probably a little later in her career, she would want those other roles where she got to be a less who she was and more of an exploration of what she could do acting wise. But she's definitely the girl next door. And that's why we created Madra, so that we would have one actress who was anything but the girl next door. And they would they would play off of each other. They would have friction between the two of them. Who inspired Madra? Because she's a fantastic character. And when we think about her costumes, she's got one that's called Black Widow. Then she's got one called Heartless. And then you had one, So Evil, yeah. My Love. <laughs> we had so much fun with her. <laughs> she has a lighter side. You think we side. were telegraphing anything? I don't know. But then she has a lighter <laughs> side. She gets into this Highland fling. And then she's another one yes. that's still beautiful and sophisticated, but it's called Pink with Envy. But there's an undertone yes. there. There's still some drama going on. Well, I, I have always thought that Madra was a combination of, if you put Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, and Lucille Ball in a blender <laughs> and hit puree, they would be Madra. That Madra would come out. I always thought, I, I always had those three because they are all three really, you know, amazing and, um, and, and talented, crazy talented, all three of them. So Madra, I had done the first drawing for the book 
before Madra came out. And I had a monogram of an M in it because I was putting the first monogram of all the characters in the drawings in the book. Just a conceit that I came up with that I, le- I later regretted, but I, I did it for the entire book. I want, her name was going to be um, Margot. And then we couldn't get the trademark on that because getting trademarks for a product is very important. The first one was Maxine Lester was her name. And we couldn't get Maxine because of a trademark thing. We couldn't get Margot because of a trademark thing. And, I, and we were running out of time because we had to start doing the, you know, the promotional packaging and everything for it. So it had to be an M name. So I would walk around Manhattan. Anything that started with an M, I would see if that sounded like a good movie star name. And I literally dreamt Madra and woke up in the middle of the night, Madra. And I later found out, never knowing that Madra is Celtic for Fox. Wow. I love that. And an anagram for drama. It's so original. And I didn't realize either of those things when I picked the name. And it's very, you know, Madra. It's got yeah. You can see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I felt, I felt like I was given that name just to keep me from, you know, going nuts, basically. When you said those three stars, uh, Lucille Ball, Betty Davis, and Joan Crawford, they all came up through the studio system. They started in smaller roles. They danced. They sang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did so much. They had flair for comedy, drama. Yep. And so this gives Madra that feeling, that aura. That fantastic or which is a little earlier in film history than we would place Jean. Yeah. She's discovered in 41. Jean is discovered in 41 because I wanted it to begin right before the war started. I, there was a, a generation of actress that were pinups for soldiers going overseas. And I decided early on that Jean's career was from 40. 41 to 62, I think I decided, and um, that she got out before the, the mod thing happened. Well, also films changed dramatically. And a lot of stars. I mean, okay, Joan Crawford and, and, and Betty Davis actually were still in there acting until the end. Till the very end. Till the very end. But their biographies tell you that they did it out of necessity, not only yeah. out of the love of the craft, but right. out of necessity because this was their job. What about Trent? We can't forget leading man Trent Osborne, who was described as star of stage, screen, and scandal. So he's also under contract to, is it Monolith Studios? Monolith, where Monolith yeah. He stars opposite Gene and Madra. So who steals Trent's heart, Gene or Madra? I think Trent steals Trent's heart. I, I, I wanted an all-purpose leading man who had a bit of cad about him. The thing is, when you're designing a male doll, the one thing it can't be is Ken, Barbie's boyfriend, because that's been done. Yeah. And you really can't do that. So I needed... The boy next door. Exactly. And I needed to come up with a face that looked like it had been slapped a few times. That was my, 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 my idea for him. And I actually based the first drawing on a photograph of Raymond Burr, who I always thought was very, very handsome. I've always yeah, loved yeah. the way he looked. Amazing actor. I mean, Trent has a completely different nose than Raymond Burr and, and you know, has had different eye colors and stuff. But Raymond Burr was, the, was literally the photo I drew, drew it from. There were so many wonderful male stars back then, leading men. And, I, and just like Gene, he had to imply many different actors, depending on the costume he's in, the color of his hair. Trent was the studio bad boy. I mean, he was, he was not uh, a family man. He didn't have, uh, you know, he could afford to, to be kicked off films and not worry about it personally. And I loved Trent. Creating him was a, a challenge because male dolls can be very bland, you know, and that sort of harkens back to Ken. And I think that was intentional for the era that Ken happened in. Yeah, well, he's supposed to be the boyfriend of a teenage girl. So exactly. Exactly. he's meant to be non-threatening. Exactly. Well, I wanted yeah. Trent to be kind of threatening, I guess. <laughs> and, and we drew him, his body was designed based on like Vargas and petty swimsuit ads for Jansen. And, you know, beautiful, just 
like the Koros, the statues, the Koros statues. Yes. You know, we use classical sources for the design of his body. And you may not know this, but Trent's body that was eventually sold was not the first design. It had to be slenderized. His body was so beautiful, but he looked originally, but he looked like a thug in clothes. So we had to slenderize it a lot and make him much thinner because just the, the bulk that the clothes would add to that body. He had to look good in those clothes. So it broke my heart a little bit that we had to change Trent's body as much as we had to. We had to elongate his neck. We had to make his shoulders a little narrower. We had to, his, his torso more na- narrower. But he still has the gorgeous hands and feet that that we designed for him and the face. And Trent was, a, a, again, a, that one was an act of love, too, because I wanted to do I was challenged to do a really exciting male doll, and that's hasn't been done as much as as beautiful lady dolls. No, it hasn't been done, and he really, uh, to me, he epitomizes Red Butler looking up the stairs the first time at Scarlett O'Hara with that mischievous look on his face. You know, he's Trent has humor yeah. as well as drama, as well as charm, you know, and this is a great thing in a doll, but the clothes are beautiful. And yes, always with dolls, all through doll history, the body has had to be slenderized and made to be a mannequin for the clothes. It's high-end haute couture doll-wise, you know, that just creates something that beautiful. We had real tailors working on those clothes. And I still think, my opinion is that Trent is still like, he's my favorite male doll I've ever seen. I haven't seen one that made me change that. But he was also specifically from that period. I mean, you know, I I, I see beautiful male dolls, but Trent was supposed to be from that era. Yes. And there was a certain type of look that male movie stars had. And I frankly, I loved having his hair sculpted rather than rooted because we could make it sharp and short on the sides. Yeah. When you're doing actual rooted hair, it gets more, it becomes much more difficult to do or impossible to do. He's the leading man. Trent I Osborne. think so. I think so. But yeah. that's just me because I'm his dad. I think so too. <laughs> I can't forget Violet Waters, who's a beautiful dignified doll who's a, of course Violet is a singer and uh, she's a star of Broadway musicals and she strikes the right note on and off the stage and she travels the world wowing audiences with her beautiful voice but she's also I believe Jean's best friend. Yeah she is um, within the studio Jean's best friend. We gave Violet different hands. We gave her longer fingers because she was a musician and I imagined her playing the piano and I, f- I feel for her character because Lena Horne did as much as she appeared on film and as wonderful as she was, she it, she got a raw deal in some ways because that was just, you know, mm. her scenes were made so they could be cut out in the South, you know, because the South was that's not. Yeah, I know, but that's, that's horrible, but it's true. She would be brought in to do a musical number in a film and because that could be taken from the film when they went to the, you know, to the South. So we were bound by history yeah. for who we could make Violet be. But I loved, um, there's a wonderful, wonderful um, actress named um, Ethel Waters, who yes. I've loved since childhood when I saw her in Member of the Wedding. And I just thought Violet Waters... Those two names together implied a singing voice. And she was exciting to do. She was such a um, wonderful thing. I mean, I was so happy when we could do that. We could make a doll that I thought was as relevant as, as she was. I, lo- I love Violet. I love Violet. She's, she was a real um, labor of love, for sure. And she adds a beautiful dimension to the whole, you know, Hollywood scene. Yes. And she yes. does represent the strong, beautiful, mostly musicians. As you said, she's got those beautiful, long musician fingers. Those wonderful artists who appeared in film and brought a whole new dimension and brought maybe music to people who mightn't have known so much about jazz or the blues. Absolutely. Or- oh, absolutely that. Well, you know, Lena Horne who, and, and Dorothy Dandridge and all, all had stage careers as well. And yes. I think that that was where her career, where she was 
the queen of was theater and and music and recordings. So she had a she had a life more than her film career, more than the other characters actually. Because just to be real, just to be real about it, she was you know uh, roles roles that should have gone to Lena Horne did not in film. I mean, Ava Gardner played Julie in Showboat, which should have and could have been Lena Horne, but they couldn't because of audiences and codes and stuff. So she was the most complex of the characters we had to work on. And, and, and we were bound by the realities of the period to not make it, you know, to, to adhere to the realities of that. But she and Jean were dear friends, like best friends. What was Jean's last film? I mean, it's a sad thing to say, but you decided in her biography that she was going to retire before the 60s. So what do you think she picked as the last project to work on? What kind of film? That's a really interesting question. I've never actually thought of that. Well, you know, the the latest costumes, we did a a doll called Telstar. And it, I did it with Ashton Drake. And she has the first of the 60s sort of bouffant styles. Mm. And then we did a second one with integrity that's based on Jackie Kennedy, based on something that Jackie Kennedy would have worn. And, um, you know, I've never thought of what her last film would be. I hope it would be, some, I hope it would be a wonderful film. I hope it wouldn't be, you know, Trog. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, in fact, that would be why what Jean was retiring when she did. She didn't want to. She she didn't want a trog in her future. <laughs> you know, but, the trog is now uh, a huge cult classic. It's of course sure Jane Crawford's last of film, and she plays a scientist. Yes, who. They're doing some kind of experiments. I can't remember, but she yes. plays a scientist. Why don't we leave it at that? And people can look it up on YouTube. But now it's uh, got an audience and it's got a cult following and uh, people look at it in a different way. Yes, it is. You know, I don't have I don't actually have a film title prepared for this because I, I loved making up a lot of the film titles because you could incorporate you could in- capture so many a group of films like Love's Ghost is clearly the ghost of Mrs. Muir. Yes. But it's also a group of, you know, after World War II, there were a group of these spiritually themed movies that happened because so many people lost loved ones during the war that implying, suggesting that people, people's love and lives went beyond, beyond life and beyond death. Yeah. And um, so 60, that would be an interesting thing. I mean, women's roles were beginning to change then. So I hope it would be something like, I don't know, the best of everything. One of those kind of movies where she would be a career woman and have a life. God, that's a really good question. I've never thought of that. What would Gene Marshall's charade? Although that's a great movie. Oh, it is. It is. I just watched it from start to finish. Like amazing film. Fantastic clothes. And of course, Cary Grant standing in for Trent Osborne. So we want her to have something that's got a happy ending because that film has a happy ending, has a lot of drama and a lot of tension and a lot of range. And there's comedy in that film, too, which I like, you know. It's very fun. Because they were so funny together. Yeah, they were. So, you know, I can't give you... I can't give you her last movie title, but I, I would want it to be her fond farewell to Hollywood. And I would say she would come back later and do Broadway, maybe do a film later. I, I wanted, I literally, I, I sort of based her post-film career on Audrey Hepburn's because Audrey Hepburn moved to Italy and had, you know, a beautiful life, raised beautiful children, yes. sons. And I, 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 wanted, I wanted Jean to have a good life, not just a great career, but a good life. And that's why I thought at a certain point, she saw that it was time to go. And she wanted to she wanted to leave while she was still on top. Whatever her last film was, was a huge success. No matter what Jean did next, did it have star quality? Mel Odom, thank you so much for joining us on the Doll Podcast. It It is such a joy to speak to you. Well, same here. I really, really love speaking to you. It's a joy.
Well, it's been fun. I really love um, talking about Jean. And while I still have my marbles and I can remember all of this stuff, all the minutiae that went into this, because that was one of the things that was that was so wonderful about it, that we gave it so much content. I always wanted it to yes. have enough that would it would interest people. There would be things there to 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 explore and to read about and to, you know, enjoy. Thank you so much, Mel. My pleasure. To find out more about Mel Odom, Jean Marshall, or Hollywood star Marsha Hunt, please go to our website, www.dollpodcast.com, and click on Podcast. Remember to subscribe to The Doll Podcast as we're back for our spring 2023 season, and we have another episode coming up soon. We look forward to welcoming you then.